This is not to bore you with my family history, even though I am partial to some of them, and many of them were household names, but to give you a sense of the hardships these people endured so that I could be here. I'm sure it was the same for all the congregations in the States and everywhere in the early days. I never took the time to read my mother's yearbooks until the past couple of years. These men were more than pastors. They were horsemen, mechanics, skilled at woodcraft for survival, able to grow food and raise livestock, and much more. The distances mentioned are notable, as any travel would have involved considerable time. I know the country they worked and traveled in. I worked in it for half my life in its raw state, but at least I had trucks to get myself home and reasonable roads to travel on. These men survived by the grace of God. It's no wonder now that when I think back, I never heard my mother ever complain about living conditions. Bob Schultz, Mellowdale, Alberta. Welcome, everyone. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills here with Zelwyn Heidi, Adam Coons, and David Apple. And today we're going to talk to you about pioneer pastors. Well, gentlemen, how are you? Adam? Uh, doing great. How are you? Uh, doing good. Uh, just, you know, sitting here. How's the weather down in uh, Fort Wayne today? <laughs> um, it is pioneer-like. It's uh, very windy and very cold. So um, Zelwyn would be more at home here than I am today. <laughs> How about you, David? How are things in in the in the great city of Paducah? Well, we're we're thawing out, and uh, yesterday we just got really hit hard. It, we had some freezing rain and a little bit of sleet after that, and so I think everything's closed today. Um, maybe we'll get back online this weekend. Maybe. Well, we'll see. We we uh, we got the same ice storm that you did first, but I don't think. It, I mean, I think just north of us got hit hard. We were just blessed here. Made it up to the office uh, relatively easily, so um, we'll see if um, all today's scheduled activities will go on as planned. We'll find out. Yeah, I mean, the, I I drove in no problem, but as I was driving in, everything else was closed. Even though well, there is no more ice. It well, here's just, the, the, here's, the idea. Here, was here's bad. the trick that nobody here seems to have discovered in winter weather. Everybody is like, "Hey, why don't you buy a four wheel drive truck like I do?" Uh, like a, like an Arkansan should, and uh, my reply is: I drive a twenty year old Buick sedan four door, and it there is no better vehicle for inclement weather. Many few know this. Few know this. So, um, pro tip from the word fitly spoken crew: drive a boat is what you're saying. <laughs> Dr- drive a boat. Just the sheer weight will keep you on the, the sheer road. weight and the distribution. <laughs> it's very very wide. So, Zelwyn, how about you? How are things in Siberia? Uh, things warmed up a little bit. Uh, I think the weather today is somewhere more around the lines of just a little bit below freezing. I want to say maybe like five to 10, somewhere in there. And, uh, it actually warmed up to above zero. So there, there is hope in the midst of everything. For the folks at home, Zoan is recording this shirtless and in flip-flops. <laughs> AC blasting. He, he has, he has very good Wi-Fi from his wallow right now. <laughs> I've been hibernating for a while, and you guys woke me up. So, <laughs> Well, speaking of uh, inhospitable places, today we want to talk about pioneer pastors. We've got a really specific example to, to look at. Um, it's going to be a really good discussion, a really good show, very important for us, both for pastors and for laymen to hear, uh, simply because it's going to help explain how we got here, the grit that men had who went out, 
and did the work that needed to be done. So part of our history that's sometimes forgotten uh, simply because we, again, we've got these historical blinders, right, guys? We go from, say, 1517 to 1580. Well, uh, let me start over. 8033, 1517, 1580, <laughs> 1847, go. and then roughly 1950, and then ending at Simonex, the only, the last and great victory. This is how our history is recorded. Uh, but there is so much more going on here, especially as you go back to these primary sources, uh, very, very much inspirational kind of stuff here. So uh, looking forward to that. So Adam, you want to start us here? Let's uh, tell us a little bit about why it's important to discuss it. It's important because it is the history that most of our congregations at one time or another actually lived. So um, they may or may not have had, you know, knowledge or understanding of a lot of the things that we've talked about on the podcast. I I think, for example, we have several episodes about the breakup of the Synodical Conference, but my father-in-law, who was raised in the Wisconsin Synod when he moved to a different county where there was no Wisconsin Synod Church, just went to the Missouri Synod Church in the early 1970s because he thought they were still the same thing. (laughs) So uh, this is is the life and uh, that people have actually lived. And there's a listener named Bob Schultz, whom we quoted in the intro, who has sent me um, just free free of charge um, and out of the goodness of his heart, tons of information in connection originally with Pastor Ray Winkle and his work among the pioneers in Alberta, um, but also about the congregation in Mellowdale, Alberta, that Bob and many of his um, ancestors came from. So that, and I just uh, can I, if I yeah. can make one quick point. I believe that pioneer is a word that we need to get back into our uh, our vocabulary and use as often as we can. And I don't say that just because we've got the Brigham Young episodes coming up either. But uh, <laughs> but uh, pioneer is just such a, a powerful and evocative word that yeah. we need to that we need to just hide in our hearts and minds. Sorry about that. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah. No. No. That's that's exactly right because this is this is something that. At any given time, you know, if you go back and you listen to the Tennessee Synod episodes, the frontier is moving at any given time. And we think of that in terms of settlement, but that's also true for the church, maybe in connection with the first, you know, uh, European settlement in a given place. But it could be applied also to, um, I think about John Bankin, who grew up in Texas when it was still sort of the frontier, is one of the pioneer pastors of the Missouri Synod in Houston which didn't originally have the same kind of German settlement that San Antonio did. So this is a dynamic that's always ongoing. And I think for a lot of us, rather than thinking in the present day about, you know, oh, what's falling down or what's falling apart, which there's always plenty to think about, could begin to think about, okay, well, what could be built? What could be built new in the way that the pioneers had to? Right. And I don't think that even after, let's say, statehood comes in the United States, that the pioneer conditions just disappear. I mean, I'm thinking of like, especially with North Dakota and stuff like that, um, a lot of the things that we're going to talk about was true well after 1889, when North Dakota became a state. So this this was just a way of life in a part of the world that was, I mean, we were settling it new. I mean, and it was, it was a a very difficult thing and a yeah. very godly thing too. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And if you take a place like North Dakota or Alberta and Canada, British Columbia, large parts of the West coast, those were frontier conditions 
a little more than 100 years ago. So this really isn't that long ago. This is maybe your great-grandparents, depending on what part of the continent they were in. And so, I mean, there are, there are photos of these things, um, some of which we'll, we'll probably be using in connection with this episode. And you can see the conditions they lived in and how Spartan they were. Hey, perhaps a call to go back. Who knows uh, what, we're, what we're going to be dealing with in the future, what we're going to be. Um, you know, it's kind of like a new seminarian, or not a new seminarian, excuse me, a fourth-year seminarian. He's looking forward to call night. And they all have this uh, this ideal parish they would like to go to, but almost universally, nobody wants to go to a certain parish. And I won't name the one that they use as an example because it Zelwyn will will rage out, and he should. But they always <laughs> use an example of a certain parish in a certain Dakota. Uh, that's the one you don't want to go to. Right. And I remember what Zelwyn said, and it was very powerful. And evocative when he said, yeah, and if you all hadn't talked about that parish that way, it might still exist today. Uh, the, yeah, so Zelwyn, uh, yeah, you've, the Zelwyn Book of Maxims, that's going right in the first entry there. But <laughs> Caphorisms. It, we, we, have, we have, whether implicitly or explicitly, uh, depending on who the teacher was, fed into people's minds that you really don't want to do this, that it would be a bad thing, that you want the comfy suburban parish that you want to be within three radial you know uh three mile radius of a of a chipotle that you want to be you know near x y or z that that is the ideal call the ideal call is is setting three a three-day vbs and a fully funded concordia plan rather than where god actually sends you and so yeah uh you know people find themselves despondent when uh when they're not cl- close enough to a Culver's or something like that. And then it's a stark contrast to these men and how they understood their calling to the, to the prairie. Well, and your Chipotle call and, you know, all the comforts that you have and your three day VBS and the, the, you know, full, being fully salaried and all that sort of thing that only exists because of the sacrifices that these men made. Yeah. You stand on their shoulders. So, I mean, it, it really, because when, when you look at back at some of these guys, you know, traveling distances we can't even imagine, which we'll get into, and yet being underpaid besides, I mean, the world was not worthy. I mean, there's yeah. really no other way to put it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And um, there is a pastor who, who served Christ Lutheran in, in Melodale, Alberta, named Albert Schwerman, who would later be a professor at Concordia College, Edmonton. And when he was placed out of St. Louis... Um, he's, he was, they asked him if he was interested in missionary work. He said, of course. And they said, well, what about India? And he said, well, it's just way too hot. (laughs) So, uh, they said, okay, thank you. And on call day, which they had a lot less notice of than our students do now at, at either seminary, uh, or the, the two Canadian seminaries, they said Melodale, Alberta. And he figured out that it was the northernmost at that time parish in the Lutheran Church, Missouri (laughs) Synod. They were um, making a said, point. They were making a point, and he said, "This is fantastic." And all of his classmates, you know, gave him their condolences, basically. So I, I think at any given time, not everyone is really cut out to be a pioneer. There are always people that go home, and Ray Winkle talks about that too. In the that which you get through his memoirs, quoted in the in the Ron Stelzer biography we talked about before, that the attrition rate 
in any settlement situation, and this is true for church planting, even in a giant city today, the attrition rate is always high because not everyone wants to have to do the things that not only pastors, but also the people had to do just to make a living. That reminds me of a, a story about out here in the Dakotas. Uh, my first parish where I was at over in Grassy Butte used to participate in the old vicarage program. Mm-hmm. And when I say the old vicarage program, that's when the vicars basically served as pastors, more or less, for a time. Yeah. You went out and you didn't have a supervisor and that sort of thing. But anyway, the point is, is that there was one who came and was more or less installed as the vicar at that place. But then he was gone by the following morning. (laughs) (laughs) And they still remember this. But I mean, basically, the point being that he recognized that he didn't want to be out here. He didn't feel like he was cut out for it. And while I'm not going to praise him for it, because it was kind of a cowardly thing to do, it certainly shows the difficulty of this situation. And this was in the 50s. Yeah. Yeah. So. It is. It is a different, a different thing. Absolutely. I mean, do you have any idea what spooked him? Did he get out there and say, "We don't even get the Dumont network. I can't do this." <laughs> well, and, I don't even think the highway was paved at the time, so that was part of it. I'm sure. So, <laughs> it's just, it's a remote area. Let's put it that way. Zoan is presently tearing up the roads right now, trying to bring it back. <laughs> <laughs> the only way to get around is by train. That's the only acceptable way. <laughs> well, all right. Well, let's let's start digging into this um, a little bit. Let's talk about the settlement that we're going to specifically talk about here, Adam. Yeah, because uh, the things that, that that we're talking about are are like we said, relatively recent, a hundred and a little bit more than a hundred years ago. You'll find similar dynamics if you look up a frontier for basically anywhere you are on the North American continent. In Alberta, you're dealing with settlement where um, it becomes a province in 1905. So that's that's pretty late. And at that point, they're trying simply to settle it, to get someone there. So the recruitment by 1905 is from largely from Germans who are not in Germany anymore. Um, those folks have, by and large, already emigrated and generally to the United States. So what you get instead are people coming from Russia, coming from what is now Ukraine, might soon be Russia, I don't know, (laughs) but at the time is the Austro-Hungarian Empire, coming from what is now Romania, so Transylvanian Saxons. Um, So they all speak... Yeah. Which is is a real thing. It's a real... It is a very real thing. Yes. And so they all speak German, more or less, but... They have very different customs. They have different hymnals. uh, They have different food. And really all they have in common is that allegedly they're all Lutherans. And so they come to an area that in Saskatchewan or Alberta, we have a Saskatchewan native um, on the show today. Um, It's Willie. I feel the need to uh, point out that that is a joke. (laughs) The, the 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 first and last time I'll ever explain a joke to anyone, <laughs> but but the the land is very marginal for agriculture in many places, um, but it is free to to white settlers. So that that they're brought here on the train and sort of dumped off, and then from the train station they're going to make their way largely by ox. Um, ox carts are the way that they're going to get around for about thirty years. Until 
cars become somewhat more common, but then they're going to try to farm and, and they're going to, they're going to do pretty well. And they will themselves, partly because communication is, you know, sort of available, they're going to make calls back to Eastern cities or at least East of them, largely to St. Paul. So what is then called the Minnesota Dakota district of the LCMS is going to be sort of the hub there in St. Paul, Minnesota for sending out somebody, please give us somebody. And uh, so some pastors will come from Ontario, but largely they're going to come from the United States. And because, you know, let's be honest, this is always the dynamic, largely because they can't say no, they will come from the seminaries in Springfield and St. Louis. Well, and I, and roughly about the same time period too, I mean, Minnesota was the hub of, of North, North Dakota. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's where yep. The pastors came from. That's where they were traveling from, often by train to get there initially, but then sometimes by horse or car, right. whatever it may be. But I mean, you have, well, I mean, you have Fotenhauer, for example, later president of the synod, yep. um, acting as a missionary out here in Central North Dakota. Yeah, I mean, he was one of the ones instrumental in, you know, actually establishing the congregation I serve, one of the congregations I serve now. Yeah. So I mean, that just that idea that. Minnesota, at least for that part of the world and for that part of Canada, kind of did become one of the the central missionary hubs. Yep. Um, although, like I said, and we're not we're looking at these because these are what we're familiar with. But I mean, you could take this and apply it pretty much anywhere. You're going to have pastors coming from some more established place where they actually have a bunch of you know pastors and stuff like that coming into these areas with hardly anyone around yep. and often traveling great distances yep. to do so. And it's important to note, it's just the way it is, that a large chunk of wherever we ended up, whichever newly established area or you know uh, area being tamed, we'll say, uh, we tended to follow where the immigrant patterns were. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean that we're excluding evangelism of other groups or anything, as we've, we've sort of debunked that in previous episodes, but that, that is the general yeah. pattern. That wherever these immigrants landed, we would send a guy. They would request, we would send, and he would go out. Right. And we were able to establish a presence relatively quickly because of that. I won't say easily. Easily just in a, and you have a base already. Everything else is going to be extraordinarily difficult. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, that's, that's naturally the way it went. And it worked well for us. You know, now maybe... We don't really have that anymore, as far as that goes, um, as far as a built-in Lutheran or quasi-Lutheran base. But let's not pretend that these guys didn't have a lot of catechetical work to do once they got there. I think people kind of get it wrong. They think, oh, they showed up and everybody is some kind of quia-subscribing Missouri Synod Lutheran just ready to be transferred onto our new roles or something yeah. like that. Yeah, because you'll you'll see people shift back and forth depending on the availability of pastors. So if the Missouri Synod guy goes back to the United States, for example, goes back to Illinois, where he's from, and a German-speaking reform minister comes in, well, they're eventually, many of them are going to go to church there. Um, or the kids speak English, but the German Lutherans don't. So then the kids drift away to a Methodist or a Presbyterian church. So those dynamics are always there. It's not like they had it easy, and they definitely had it harder in trying to get around the earth. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Well, hey, we've got to take our first break. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly Spoken right after this.
Welcome back, everyone. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills here with Zoe and Heidi, Adam Koontz, and David Apple. We're talking about pioneer pastors, specifically in northern Canada. Well, a fun introduction there in the first segment. And a question a lot of people might have is, okay, you're out there, you're on a horse, you're going to travel large distances. How did you, how did they survive? Where did you cash your paycheck? You know, how were you paid? How did these guys make it? Adam? Yeah, the paycheck thing is a great place to start because often they, they just didn't have one, right? right. Um, they're, not, they're not really involved. Uh, their people are not involved really with cash very much. So even into the 1920s, 1930s, if the men need cash seasonally, especially during the summer, they might go to maybe a city and, and make some money that way, do some work in, in maybe in Edmonton or a Calgary. But um, generally, cash is not part of daily life. And that is something that, you know, when J.P. Kaler talks about his father in Frontier, Wisconsin, it's very similar. So um, what's happening is that the pastors are sharing the life that their people lead. So they are doing a little farming. They, might, they probably have a cow. They probably have chickens. Um, like their people... Um, they're definitely hunting and fishing like their people do. And that's going to continue into the present day for a lot of guys. That's part of the appeal for some, right? So uh, in some of the reminiscences of the pioneer laity, they'll say, you know, I remember when the first time that pastor so-and-so who grew up in Ohio first went moose hunting, you know? So this is just, this is just what they do. And, th- and that's the way it always was, even when, when cash was pretty short, the difference for a pastor is that he has to travel a lot more than a farmer. And he's traveling all the time, not just seasonally for work. So what he's going to do is, um, and there's a really beautiful reminiscence by uh, Albert Schwerman. He'll say, you know, I, I never went hungry. Uh, because the thing that they universally witness to is that these people have an incredible sense of hospitality. Right. So he said, there are times where, yeah, I, I don't eat, I don't eat lunch because I, I can't get candy bars. There, there's no snack food and I don't have cash anyway, and nothing is really for sale. But once I get where I'm going that day, the people will feed me this and they'll feed me that. And I'm never going to go hungry, really. Right. I might we're, miss a couple of meal times. We're, we're reaching wholesome levels that shouldn't even be possible. Yeah. You know, <laughs> no, there, there is something, this true. is going to sound a little, a little strange to some people, but if if we if we treat the pastoral office as merely another career then it becomes in, at least in part a means by which to attain whatever worldly goals are and when yeah. you find yourself straddled with debt and mortgages and the struggles and cares of this life you are not as liberated you're not as free as some of these guys are their their lives and their callings were much, much more difficult, immensely more difficult than ours are. And yet they are so, they have so much more freedom in a way. Yeah. Because they are, they are living uh, purely in light of the gospel and everything they receive is, is the gospel is out of uh, Christian uh, charity and kindness. And it's, it's a, it's a free way to live. Yeah, no, that, no, that's, that's so good because the guy is not going to graduate seminary, for example, with debt. That's right. just not really a function. That's not the way that our education system worked at the time. So he's not going to have debt. Now, he's not really going to have anything. Right. But therefore, he's like you say, he's very free and he's going to live off really gifts. I mean, 
there are, and this is, this is a commonality in a lot of the guys that we've talked about on this podcast. Also, you know, Bertolt von Schenk, who has a very entertaining memoir, did an extended vicarage in Montana when he was in seminary at St. Louis and he's sleeping in barns. I mean, so on a physical level, the comforts are many fewer. And, you know, Schwerman will talk about things. And, and we, we know from the Ray Winkle episode that, you know, he fell on barbed wire and that's how he met his wife. So physically, their lives are very difficult. Schwerman talks about, I fell in this icy stream and then my horse, who was already spooked, ran away from me right, right. further down the icy stream. So I'm knee deep and I spend most of the rest of the day chasing this horse when I finally get him, because I kind of corral him into a clump of trees that he can't go anywhere, then I saddle him and my pants are soaked, but I have to ride another eight miles. So my pants were dry by the time I got to the house that I was aiming for that day. So physically, <laughs> that's just a lot more difficult than basically anyone's life who's listening to this. But he doesn't, there, there is a way of living in the present and overcoming those difficulties because he isn't saddled, like you said, with these other cares, nor are his people, really. They're, they are living in a way much more moment to moment than we do. David, you're a resident Canadian, and you're being awfully quiet over there. Are you feeling the guilt of well, you know, I, not going up to, the, to northern Canada and <laughs> living the dream? Well, you know, in the first segment, you were talking about um, how how they got pastors out there. And even in the 1980s, so my father was sent to Saskatchewan in, I think, 1982. I think he grad, no, it was 83 or 84 when he graduated from the St. Louis Seminary. And uh, I mean, I have no, I have no remembrance of Saskatchewan, uh, but we went from Saskatchewan. I think he went to Calgary. I, I really, these things are all prior to my own memory and then we ended up in Michigan. Um, so it's just interesting to hear to hear these things and to think about, well, a little bit about the the pioneering spirit that you were referencing in the first segment, and um, to what extent that can be recovered apart from pioneer conditions. Um, Adam just mentioned von Schenk, and he was he was assigned out of seminary to an inner city St. Louis parish, but it was the same same kind of mentality about, right. um, yeah. you know, nobody wants to go there in North Dakota, but also nobody wants to go to this place in the middle of St. Louis. And it does require a pioneering spirit. And I think Von Schenk, regardless of what you think of him, he fits that bill, <laughs> right? Um, yeah, right. And right. so he yeah. went there. And so I, I, I'm just uh, listening to what you're saying here and thinking, how do you recover that spirit without you know, the conditions of riding a horse eight miles while your pants dry out. I mean, I, I, I had to drive 30 minutes the other day and I was worried because I was low on gas and there wasn't an exit, um, for, for three or four more miles. So, I mean, it's just not the same, but so well, how did you, you let record? your tank get that low anyway? That's a question for another episode. But well, if, we if did you know me, Willie. On, we did a whole episode on being prepared. Yeah. Yeah. And I didn't take it to heart. I haven't stored these things up in my heart. Yeah, he does so. have a garden. He just doesn't fill up his <laughs> gas tank. Yeah. I repent. Well, I, I repent. Mean, I think, you know, asking the question of like, how do we actually have this pioneering spirit when it seems like the pioneer days are gone? And maybe, probably, I think the best way to, to tackle that is to say, to be willing to do whatever is needed to be done, regardless of the cost. 
And because the reason I say that is because I'm thinking like in the, the old days, like here in North Dakota, where the railroad, there's only two main rail rail lines that go through North Dakota. One kind of follows what is now Interstate I-94. The other follows what is uh, Highway 2 up in, in the north, the High Line. But so you could go relatively quickly, you know, east and west in North Dakota, but then you had to go up on what were often dirt roads and very poorly maintained to be able to get to where you're going. And yet these pastures did it because they understood that it needed to be done. And maybe I think I think we've lost that to some degree, yeah. that willingness to do just what needs to be done in the interest of comfort, in the interest of, oh, I don't want to overwork myself or whatever it may be. These men were willing to pay great prices and a great cost because they knew that this needed to be done. Yeah, I, th- I think the, the focus on the task and, and an awareness of the stakes that if you don't go there, it's not like they have other options or someone else is going to bring them the gospel. Or if he does, he's going to bring it with well, some admixture of falsehood. So you need to do this. And, and, and why, you know, why can't that be a motivator? We, this is another case where if we're not careful, we'll let, we'll let, we'll sort of do a justification by systematics here and go, well, election is what it is. So God's going to send uh, somebody there to, to call them anyway. So it doesn't have to be me. Right. I mean, there, there is, there, there, there is a way in which, you can read your way out of doing this work if you're not careful. Well, somebody else will do it. You know, here I am. Well, that's that's just for Isaiah. That's not for me. Yeah. The only passages I can take out of context are the ones that make me feel okay. Uh, so, so that this idea that hey, God might actually call you into some place where you don't want to be mm-hmm. is it's not entirely foreign, but the exercise of it, guys become very surprised when they find themselves facing that situation. And look, the fact of the matter is God will raise people up to preach that gospel. God will send people where he will. And sometimes that person might be you. And you can't just simply say, it's not going to be me. I mean, you can, yeah. you're free to do that, but that, that puts you in a difficult spot with the Lord there. Yeah. I, I think to, um, you know, lots of guys talk from a lot of different perspectives about uh, having or, or their people's need to have a high view of the pastoral office. I don't, I don't really think you can express a higher view of the pastoral office than I wrote a letter and I hope that it would travel over 500 miles so that some pastor would come to me. Well, isn't it interesting that you rarely see in these in these source documents, in the primary sources, in the diaries, everything like that, the letters, everything that's extant, you you don't see, well, f- we need a pastor, but Fred's here, so we're just going to let him do that work. <laughs> we're going to let him start consecrating the elements. We're going to let him start absolving. Yeah, yeah. No, that's totally right, because the, the thing that they did before, especially uh, cars being widely available so pastors could travel faster f- and farther, is what are called reader's services. So exactly. they, they yeah. read usually a postal, maybe like a Luther postal for that Sunday. And uh, one of the you know elders of the congregation. Yeah. Is and gonna, we, and we still read. have that now. I mean, like mm-hmm. if a pastor is missing or sick on a Sunday, whatever, he's not there. That's what a lot of our congregations will do. Yeah. That's the, that's the vestige left of that. Thinking of that reader's service, though, um, actually here in the church I'm in right now, 
there is one of those old sermon books. It's a very old book. It's actually older than the the nation. It's, it was printed in one, I think like 1750 or something like that. Uh, but that's what they would do is they, if the pastor wasn't there, they'd crack open the book and they would read a sermon. And that's how they got what they needed until they had someone able to come and serve them. Yeah. So, yeah. So you do have these little, I bet, I bet many times if you dig deep enough in your church somewhere, you'll probably find stuff like this that's still around that's just gathering dust. Yeah. I mean, well, and it, it's also a high view. It's a high view of the office for someone to request a pastor to come, but also the guy who goes has to have a great sense of his of himself that I have to go do this. I have to go um, travel on horseback to preach a thirty minute sermon uh, because it it is important that I do it, and I can't just you know call in sick and say it's just too far. The, you know, it, there was some ice lat yesterday, so I can't be there. Yeah. I mean, both the pastor and the congregation have this great sense that, um, having a man in person is it, whatever the cost is, we're going to suffer it. Yeah. I, I would say also their, their common sense of what they were assigned to was generally a parish. So for example, um, Schwarman was called to Mellowdale, Alberta and vicinity. And that was, uh, that was sometimes defined by the district. Your parish is uh, all of the communities on the rail line between um, Calgary and Edmonton at one time. And then eventually when the, co- the different congregations that that entails get big enough, then, okay, we're going to split that territory in half. And now half of that territory is your parish. So they thought they were, quote, parish pastors, but the natural way of thinking wasn't in terms of this or that congregation. It was more in terms of just groups of people, some of which are organized congregations, some of which we would call preaching stations, sometimes um, involving different languages, right? So the most common mix would be you have two German congregations and then you have four English preaching stations. But there are guys who are doing Latvian, Russian, German, and English. There's one guy that did all of those things in Alberta. Um, and he had, you know, he had all the Latvian congregations and then he had a couple other geographically, you know, near ones. So they, they, they are parish pastors, but the way that they think about the church is very different than here's my congregation. It's more like, here's this area and there might be one big congregation or there might be three small ones or whatever, but I have, I have an area and people collected within that area rather than this group right here and only this group and nothing else outside of it. Well, do you think like here in the Dakotas, I know I keep coming back to Dakotas, but that's yeah, just no, really great. Best, so um, like out West, for example, you had a pastor who served in one County and the whole County was more or less his parish, but he also served an area that included at least two other counties. And if, and in that part of the state, counties are very often bigger than some states. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you're talking a pastor serving an area with a radius of at least 60, 70 miles, mm-hmm. you know, in a big in a big circle kind of a thing. And to to help deal with the, the sheer size of some of that, uh, he actually organized uh, a congregation. You know, he would he'd plant a church over here. This is where you guys are going to meet. And when I get to you, then we'll have service, that kind yeah. of a thing. It wasn't every yeah. Sunday. Right. Um, but it was it was just that kind of mentality of, okay, 
we'll organize locally for the people, but the pastor is the one actually going in between, even even over these great distances. So a pastor is going to be out in the prairie uh, without purse or script. All right, he's not being paid. He's just going out there doing his thing. Mm-hmm. Um, he's going to be going around to various places. What do the meeting houses look like at this time? <laughs> Well, usually they're houses to start with. And then once they begin to build, they will often be a log church. Now, the the people are kind of proud of that in retrospect, but they will generally build a frame building as soon as they possibly can. Everything is going to be built by them, um, even designed by them. So, for example, they in the, in the case of Mellowdale, they get um, a church furnishing catalog and then they try to build an altar that looks like what they see in that catalog out of apple crates that they have. So things are home built. So then costs are pretty low because they just need things like nails and shingles, which they can't make for themselves necessarily. But um, those are the buildings they're going to build. And those buildings will always have multiple uses. So, you know, behind the, if you go in a door behind the altar, that's the schoolroom. But that's also where in a given location, maybe that's where the pastor sleeps when he's there. There's usually going to be kind of a central location within a parish, if it's not his sole congregation, where there's also a parsonage. So the idea of the parsonage is, you know, not just, oh, you know, this is for tax benefits or something. It's like, this is actually needs to be here. And then the parsonage will also be, once you get that built, generally the location for the school too. The schools like the church services, like Zelwyn mentioned, are normal, but sporadic. So um, you may not have school except for maybe a month a year, but you'll have it every day that month. And it'll be in that room behind the altar or in a room in the parsonage or something. And that's going to be reading, writing, and arithmetic and the and preparation for confirmation because right. i would say that the thing that people mention most the laity mention most is the importance for them of the pastor coming and teaching confirmation and this is you know this is i mean whatever else could be said about how we practice confirmation or what we should do the importance i think if you if you think of it this way it it makes sense why it matters kind of on a deep cultural level is you came out here you're in the middle of nowhere and the pastor came to you and he taught your children. So now your children are going to be upfront and they're going to promise to be faithful to Jesus unto death. You understand on a human level how much that means for parents who came from a different country across an ocean and here their children are and they're saying that. So, you know, that uh, that is a very powerful thing. And it's mentioned by practically every pioneer layman, not, not really the pastors. The pastors will tell stories about horses or stories about hunting or farmers that won't go to church with other farmers because they threatened to shoot them um, if their animals got in their land again. So um, they have to go to different congregations now. But the laity will almost uniformly talk about how important, how much it meant to them that they were confirmed. Right. Or, you know, not having church because of an Indian attack that yeah, happened right. in my church's history. Yeah, Although, that's right. maybe just in passing before we go into break here, you know, thinking about the the, the meeting house and the kind of the doing it yourself mentality. Yeah. Uh, one of the churches that was out here, it was long abandoned. I mean, this church hadn't been in existence for 70 years by the time I stepped into it. But the pulpit 
was very interesting because it was nothing more than two by fours and plywood, but it was done up into, you know, the, the eight sided, like you usually see. Uh-huh. So these pastors or these laymen, even though they had very little, I mean, it was, like I said, plywood and, and two by fours, yet they still took the time to shape it into what they right. remembered uh, because it was that important to them. So yeah. I think, I think that says something about the, the pioneer mentality. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, it's it's kind of the care they took with little versus the uh, the absolute monstrosities that we have built in times of plenty. You know, just something to ponder as we go to break. We'll be right back with more <laughs> Word Fitly Spoken right after this. Welcome back, everyone. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. Willie Grills, Zelman Heidi, Adam Kuntz, and David Appelt here talking about pioneer pastors. Well, a very fun discussion, sort of envisioning what these guys went through. We got a little bit of a picture of how the church buildings would look. And so now let's talk a little bit about what the service would look like. Now, we, I'm sure that they all dragged out giant pipe organs and all of the other bells and whistles that we like to roll out. Not sure how the oxen felt about that, but I'm sure that's exactly how it was. <laughs> yeah, I think the the organs came along with the um, you know extensive vestments and everything. I mean, well, I, yes, yeah. I mean, as you know, Lutheran history is right. Well, first, they built an organ, then they built a church. Right. If I can borrow a meme. Yeah, that's right. the The pastor had a black gown, which was pretty practical because it was. It was just one thing to carry, and um, a lot of them would roll the hymnals that they would they would bring with them in the gown, and then tie the gown up kind of behind them on the horse. So that was that was practical, and that was easily done. And the hymnals are you know pretty small at this time uh, physically, so they they do have hymnals. The liturgy they have as let's say an order of service, um, depending on where in Europe maybe the predominant group was from in a congregation, they might be singing it um, sometimes at an extremely slow tempo. Ray Winkle complains about how slow the Volga Germans are. He, he just really can't stand them kind of as a group. Um, it would be called racism if he had said it a hundred years later. Just can't stand them. Uh, admires them, but can't stand them. So, all, I mean. All Cretans are liars, all Volga Germans. Yeah, exactly. Right, right. And so, um, but yeah, organs are, are, are pretty unusual. They do try to get them eventually. And the pastors, the pastors will sometimes end up playing them from what I can find often with one finger because they have keyboard instruction from their, from their musical training. And that's more than anyone else can do. But 
that's kind of it. So uh, it's it's largely a cappella, and depending on where the immigrants are from, they might think that that singing the liturgy. I mean, I don't mean like TLH style, like the pastor talks, the people sing. I mean like anyone singing any part of the liturgy. They say that's too Catholic. I mean that that they do say that, and so they might not be doing that. <laughs> <laughs> so, but everything is uh, everything is spoken. There there is let's say a liturgy, and there are definitely hymns. I would say the hymns and the use of the hymn book, it was more enduring and was brought over and then picked back up. And you have to remember that um, while the Missouri Synod has a single German language hymnal, the immigrants are bringing their own hymnals, which many of them insist on using. So there's there's also some, at least well, certainly in Canada, some diversity of hymnals. Right. And to be clear, though, a lot of the the hymn selections, there's going to be a lot of overlap. There. Yep, that's right. And, yep. you know, people hear different hymnal and they get magic flute voice and they think that there's some great disunity here, but the Continental uh, the continental Lutherans don't really see it the way we would. Right. There's more unity in those hymnals. It's a, it's a question of location and printing presses mm-hmm. and different synods as much as anything. That's right, but there is there is a lot of overlap there. I mean, That's similar right. to say that there were. It's fair to say there's a lot of overlap between Missouri Synod and Wisconsin Synod hymnals, for example. Yeah, yeah, that's a great way to think of it. Yep. Yeah. Although, and, I mean, even even the early Missouri Synod was casting around looking for a hymnal. I mean, we don't have an official synodical hymnal until when? I'm trying to remember the year. Well, right, but my point is, we don't want to read back into this to say, oh, well, they were just picking whatever songs they wanted to based right, upon right, preference right, or something like that. Right. It's just is what it is. They, I mean, the, the Gesangbuch, I want to say is the 1860s, if I okay. remember correctly. So they certainly the guys, the guys coming from the seminaries or whatever, th- there is, a, there is a hymnal. Um, that's, that's not necessarily what the, the people bring with them from various, you know, parts of the Austro-Hungarian empire, but well, he's right. The, the the set of hymns that people know is so much smaller than what we're dealing with today. Um, and the tunes are so many fewer, even for the hymns that they do have. So I, I would say I would say it's simpler. That also makes a cappella possible and not just completely. Right. I mean, Ray Winkle complains about the slowness and the Emo- the emotional nature of the Volga Germans. He's not complaining that they have all of these stupid songs. He doesn't know, you <laughs> right. know, and he's never heard he just, before. It's like, yeah. I know these songs and it shouldn't be sung this way. Is right. Exactly. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, all right. Well, that's a, that's a nice segue into um, what can we learn about them today? We've, we've, we've handed at this all throughout the episode, but what, you know, you're, we don't have, we do have prairie situations. Zelwyn is an example of that, probably our closest to that. Yeah. Um, but communication travel is improved over what it was in this time. However, there is still a lot that we can learn from these people. And a lot of it has to do with spirit, grit, and determination. So let's talk about that a bit. Yeah. And to pick up on something David said earlier, uh, this this can exist in highly urbanized situations because the people themselves, depending on their life experience, depending on where they are, um, depending on how distant they are from kind of the hub of the Missouri Synod, may themselves have, even if they don't own a car because they're living somewhere so urban, this pioneer mindset themselves when they call a pastor, for example, that they are simply grateful that someone is willing to come. 
And whenever and wherever that happens, that really should be seen as an opportunity, right? No matter how precarious it is, or if it is very distant, very, you know, sparsely populated somewhere more like uh, where Zelwyn is now or, or was in his first call, that that mindset is similar because the people are going to simply be happy that you're there, right? In a way that a lot of us have had the luxury of, you know, worrying about other things or caring about other things, worrying about, you know, the, the relative Chipotle density uh, or whatever, you know, other metric you might have. And there is something admirable in the simplicity, I think, first of all, which is why they have the grit and determination that they do, the simplicity of the task. Let's have a church. Let's have a pastor. And from the pastor's perspective, I need to get to these people. Oh, I heard that these people, you know, there's a new, there's a new homestead 10 miles away. I need to get over there as soon as I can and see what's going on with that well, family. And, and this does imply kind of going back to a, a different way of looking at church planting too. Yeah. I mean, a little bit older, but still in, I mean, very recent history, we used to do this where you have a already established group of people who want to build a church. And so from there you build it. So you build around that core and then new members start coming in from that right. rather than just going out knocking on doors, taking surveys, whatever, and trying to bring people in. And right. we have in very recent years kind of backed off of that for some reason, even though it is, a very wise way to do it in a very smart way um, because you already have that core there and you're and you're kind of ready to go immediately. And people who understand that importance, that's not a bad thing. And yet what do we see so often kind of trying to go out uh, and just sort of see what sticks. That's a fine model too. That's okay. Yeah. Uh, or you go and plant a church where we already have five congregations and that's not good. Yeah. So, I don't think there's anything wrong with borrowing a little bit from what these pioneers did and say, hey, we've got a concentration of of Lutherans here. Can we build a church here? It's far away from other churches, and this does happen. Uh, as new communities are built or you know, even as many congregations as we have, there are plenty of places where you have people driving a great distance to find a solid church. Can we plant a church in the middle of those people and yeah. build something similar to that? Yeah. Yeah, it, I mean, none of it, none of it is really rocket science. It's, um, but I think that the big difference is the mindset that they have, that simply the gospel has to go forth, um, and that might mean that there's going to be a congregation well, here, or there's going to be one there. But um, well, here's yeah, yeah. I mean, here's something I've I've thought of um, as a, as sort of a missions model going forward is we need our our entrepreneurial layman to support the church in this way, and it's going to be controversial, but I'm going to say it anyway. Please donate money to support the church, but also consider you have a business hiring a man who could also serve as pastor, not to the business, but actually hiring a man to work for you, mm -hmm. who is then able to also do the work of a pastor at this plant so that he does have a way to support himself, but, he, but it's also independent of the church plant. Why not try things like that? A, a little bit of a, I don't like the term worker priest, but a, we'll say a tent making kind of model. There are ways in which people of means can help in ways that might be more long, uh, that be, might be more long term. So you can say, yes, I'm going to give a large gift up front to the church so that we can have a full time pastor for one or two years. But are we to the point where maybe we need to even look at other models? 
like that. And people might not want that. I understand the need to have a pastor. We're all full-time pastors here. I completely understand that. But there are perhaps ways in this bold new future that we're quickly marching into that uh, the layman can support churches in, in, in modes in which maybe they haven't considered yet. Something that I've thought about, this is a little bit not quite related to what you're talking about, but just you know, thinking about how we can bring some of this into our situation again. Maybe one thing we need to do is actually start talking about these men again. You know, we usually don't talk about where the church came from until we get to, you know, the, the big anniversaries, like 100 years or 125 or 150 or whatever it may be. And those are important times to bring these things up. But, you know, why not make the men who gave such sacrifices for the church? You know, we have commemorations in the Synod. Why not have local ones? You know, well, remember what these men did. Well, come on. We know the only obituaries that get printed in synodical, in big synodical publications, Zelwyn. Why would we honor such <laughs> these humble men that time has forgotten? Be- I mean, only, because- the, all, only the Lord remembers them, Zelwyn. What does that matter? <laughs> well, because I think I think if we can get these men back, you know, the memory of them back into the minds of the congregation, especially in these prairie, you know, more rural situations where these men gave so much for the sake of that church. I think well, that, well, right. hold on. I think yeah. that would be helpful because then I think it would actually inspire the people to, you know, to lay hold of their own heritage once well, more. Well, and for this reason, it's because what do you always hear in a lot of churches? Well, you know, back in whatever year we did this, wasn't that amazing they did that? Or back in this, we had this going on or this going on. Wouldn't it be great if we could go back to those times? Hey, God puts you in the times that you are. And the work and the message is the same today. So that gospel that the pioneer pastor preached, he handed down to you. He preached to your ancestors, and it has been handed down to you. You're connected with them. And so don't merely use him as an excuse to look back and say, oh, wouldn't it be great to live in those days? Understand that you stand on the shoulders of these men, that we actually still live in the same end times, so we can get at it the way that they did. Um, if if they can do it, we can do it. And we can do it in a way that they, they would marvel at the opportunities that we have and the conveniences that we have. Could you imagine how much more Ray Winkle could have gotten done if he would if he hadn't got stuck in fences or if he had, had to ride a horse? He would probably slap us all around today if he were here. I think that's a good point to make, Willie, that like it's not it's not that we we would be advocating necessarily getting rid of your organ um, so that you can ado- readopt I mean, the old. I, I said necessarily, <laughs> um, but it, the same mindset needs to to be ours too, right? Which is looking to expand, looking to to build something, um, even when you know we would look around and say, well, you know, the conditions are very are very different. I don't have to settle the land. That's true. But we do have, I think, I think you guys are right on. If you have their example before you of not just settling the land, but settling, trying to have a pioneer um, mindset for the kingdom of God expanding, um, all of a sudden you're, you're thinking more about what are the opportunities instead of just how do I keep the current congregation, you know, all the different ministries that happen within the congregation, I got to keep them afloat. Um, that can be incredibly, uh, it's just a weight that, that sits on you versus, you know, there's these exciting opportunities beyond the walls. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, reaching out and going out, not simply appeasing folks that are all already there, not just maintaining the peace or, or writing things out until the endowment fund has to be tapped into or something like that. But, you know, going out, doing the work that needs to be done, not counting the cost. The only cost you count is the cost of not doing it and what that means. Let that sense of urgency, that sense of duty, that sense of kingdom building be there. And I know people don't like to hear that. Well, we've not said soul winning yet, but that's coming. But going out and, and doing the work while it is yet day, before the night comes when no man can work. Uh, that is that is what we're called to do. And I believe people will get behind that if if we'll only go out and do it. Just, I mean, let's, I mean think of it this way, too. I remember in one of the churches that I was serving uh, for a vacancy, actually, uh, one of the old preaching gowns was still in the, the closet. You know, the old Geneva gown that everybody likes to rag on or whatever, because, oh, well, it's not liturgical or whatever it may be. But this old preaching gown was all worn out. I mean, it was kind of threadbare. It was kind of ragged, which I think says something. That even though these men didn't have much, even though they, you know, this is probably the only preaching gown that he had, you know, and he probably preached in it for 50 years. But think about what he did in that gown. Are you really going to belittle it and say, oh, well, it's not Lutheran or whatever it may be, when the man who wore it for so long did so much? I mean, we shouldn't take our fathers for granted, I think is maybe the the key message of this entire episode. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, honor thy father and thy mother. And this is the way in which we can do it by, you know, by not embarrassing them postmortem, <laughs> by, uh, by being, by being good sons and, uh, and going out and, and doing it. I, I know it's the fashionable thing to do is to throw our fathers under the bus, but we really need to be lifting them up and, and letting them still lift us up based upon their, their testimony that they bore ba- based upon, uh, what they handed down to us. We are their posterity and we should not, we should not shame them. So we're all getting Geneva gowns is what's happening. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's very practical, I guess, with the dust and the dirt and uh, you know, you show up and it's just one thing you have to put on. So pretty simple. See, if, right. if, you, if you work it real right, you could just make it into your dust jacket. Then you don't even have to take the thing off. And, and, no, no, and no, no Indian sweatshops involved in the production of these things. Yeah, there you go. There you go. Well, guys, we're coming up near the end of the episode. Do we have any parting words for the folks at home? Something that I notice in the different accounts that I've read, whether um, Ray Winkle or Albert Schwerman or really any of these other pastors in these situations who left firsthand testimony is what I think of as just relentless good humor, Mm. which I think is something, it's something that when you go through suffering for a good cause and you persevere, you have, um, it does produce hope, right? It, it really does, just like it says in Romans. And so uh, that that hopefulness that you hear or the, the good humor, the delight in simple things, all of those come out of someone who has gone through a lot, even only physically, which we've talked about, but also, you know, spiritually has gone through a lot in order to do what he's doing. I mean, I'm sure these men, they certainly had time to do so in traveling, thought, why do I have to do this? Or, or what are, 
you know, my classmates getting to do in well-appointed places in, you know, that are warmer or whatever the case may have been, it, it produces a certain good humor and, and very lively hopefulness in Christ that I, I want more people to experience. Um, so it's not only that there is suffering, it is also that suffering produces a different kind of a life and imprints your soul differently in a way that is beneficial and wonderful that our people and our pastors could, if they follow in these men's footsteps, actually get to experience themselves. Very good. David, any final words? I just keep thinking of, uh, I know this is a controversial passage, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and violent men take it by force. When I think of these guys, there isn't the alternate translation there, violent men push it forward. And John the Baptist and Jesus as kind of case in point. And I think that these pioneer pioneering guys, there is a sense of we must we must push the kingdom forward and we suffer things for it. But through our sufferings, the will to uh, persevere, like Adam was just saying, um, that that sense just comes through when you hear their stories and you think that's that's got to be the same way that I think about my own ministry. Very good. Well, thank you, gentlemen. Always a pleasure. This has been a Word Fitly Spoken. If you like what you heard and want to know more, check us out, wordfitlyspoken.org, facebook.com slash wordfitly, or Twitter at wordfitly. I'm Willie Rills here with Zell and Heidi, Adam Kuntz, and David Apple. God love you, and God bless. In closing, I'd like to mention the most important thing to us was to worship and, and hear over and over how our Lord Jesus Christ is our Savior. Every year we celebrated when he was born, how he lived on earth, how he was crucified, he died, he was buried, he arose on the third day, and finally, Jesus ascended alive into heaven. Now Esther and I wait for him to take us to be with him in heaven. We thank the Lord that we were members here at Christ Luther in these past 65 years. We hope there will always be a church here. My mortal remains will be buried in a plot in our Christ Lutheran Church Cemetery. Chris Gabbert, member, Christ Lutheran Church, Mellowdale, Alberta.